Hello and welcome to the Bulletin of Spanish Studies podcast. I'm Gemma McKenna and I will be your host. In this series, we speak to academics from across the globe and find out about cutting-edge research in Hispanism throughout Spain, Portugal and Latin America. In this episode, we will be talking to Dr. David Rudzinski. David's most recent research has been devoted to photography, how that ties into memory studies, with special focus on Latin America. But in actual fact, his interests are altogether wider than that, and he has had many adventures around the world before most recently settling in Yorkshire. So there's lots for us to get to grips with. Today, we'll be talking about an article that David wrote for the Bulletin of Spanish Visual Studies entitled Reconciling Myth with Photographic Histories in Leandro Katz's El Día Que Me Quieras. Now, let me reassure you, this isn't just any old article, not that we'd publish any of those, I hasten to add, but this one is particularly significant, given that it was selected by our panel of experts as the most original, accomplished and important study of 2020, published across both of our journals. David's article won the James Whiston Memorial Prize, an annual award of £1,000 donated from 2019 by Taylor and Francis, publishers of the Bulletin, And this award was set up to honour the memory of James Whiston, Associate Professor, Fellow and Fellow Emeritus of Trinity College Dublin, as well as a member of the Royal Irish Academy, who passed away in 2017. An internationally respected scholar of modern Spain, its history and culture, Professor Whiston was for many years General Editor of the Bulletin of Spanish Studies. So, we are an esteemed company. Congratulations on the award, first of all, Thank David. you so much, and thanks for giving me this opportunity to speak about the essay. I thought maybe the first thing we could do was try and unpack the title a wee bit, because that might be an easy way in for our listeners who aren't familiar with your work or, or with the work of Leandro Katz. So the title was Reconciling Myth with Photographic Histories in Leandro Katz's El Día Que Me Quieras. Who is Leandro Katz is maybe the most obvious question. Okay, yeah, so Leandro Katz is a very uh, interesting Argentine visual artist and uh, filmmaker who's now in his mid-80s, uh, spent about half of his life in New York, um, had a very interesting um, early period when he, he was a student at the University of Buenos Aires and actually took classes with Borges at least uh, um, as an auditor of Borges's classes. And I could go on and on and talk about um, name drop a bit as far as Leandro Katz is concerned. Uh, he seems to have rubbed shoulders with a lot of very interesting people, such as the beat poets in the US. Wow. Um, yeah, and uh, he works with Brazilian artist um, Elio Oiticica okay. um, in the 70s. Um, so, so yeah. A fascinating character. Don't worry, we will come back to him. Okay. So that's just a wee introduction to who he is. The photographic histories then that you mentioned in the title. Can you tell us about the photograph that is central to Katz's film, the one we're going to talk about? Yeah, so, I mean, basically the essay, essay I wrote is an essay about a film essay, because I think Katz's El Día Que Me Quieras is a film essay about the making of the iconic um, final photograph, the post-mortem photograph of Che Guevara, uh, which came to be known as the Che Cristo um, because Guevara famously um, looks as if he's coming back to life. Mm -hmm. Basically, that's it. The essay um, was about the documentary 
um, study of the photograph. And in, in the actual uh, documentary, he's interviewing, Leandro Katz is interviewing the photographer, uh, Freddy Alborta, um, about his experience 30 years before um, taking the photograph. And I approached my take on the film. Um, I use three different approaches. Basically, I look at the film in terms of an interrogation of the conventional association between archival, analog photography, and historicity. Mm -hmm. And then I look at the film as a cinematic mourning ritual uh, for the ideals of the 1960s, as embodied in, in you know, the totemic figure of Che Guevara. And then finally, uh, I think, and this is what drew me to this, you know, this particular essay. He makes the film in the late 90s um, at the time of an emergence of, um, let's say, cultures of memory, memory politics in Argentina in terms of memory of the disappeared, of the dictatorship between 1976 and 83. So I see the film as contributing to the memory art of, of that particular period and uh, Leandro Katz transforming Che into a kind of master trope for the regions disappeared. Okay, so I think uh, that I think that was you know that was sort of the hook for me and the, the what I was trying to get across um, more than anything else. But in the end, it did become this sort of three prong uh, approach to the the documentary. It's really a very arresting photograph for those of our listeners who maybe haven't seen even the photograph, Freddy Alborta's Che Cristo photograph. I'd urge you to go and check that out because it will help you get into the feel of the rest of the article as well. When do you think the first time you ever saw that photograph was? Because it's from when, 1967? Yeah, it's 1967. Yeah, Uh, yeah, so I think... (laughs) I have this weird fantasy that um, I actually remember seeing it on, I don't know, on a black and white TV. I actually grew up in Yorkshire as well, um, in the living room. Uh, and this is probably a complete fabrication that I'm projecting onto my own memory. But I, <laughs> you know, I, I'm convinced that I actually remember the photograph being on the news. Uh, whether that's even possible or not, I don't know. But I do remember the nineteen. I do remember the nineteen sixty eight uh, Olympics in Mexico City um, on TV and seeing tanks around the Estadio Azteca. So I do have some yeah. very old memories of uh, sort of media images from Latin America from that period. Wow. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, maybe I'm just projecting, but I do, I'm sort of, I do have this sort of sense that I do remember it from all those years ago. Well, maybe um, it's sort of like almost as seminal as the moon landing for many people for you. <laughs> right, this right, was, right, exactly. This is one of your so earliest like, memories. The Che photo was more important than the moon landing. Yeah, right. informed the rest of your life. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's what I want to do. I was actually living in Mexico City, uh, Mexico City in the mid 80s, teaching English. And, and again, I may be projecting, but I'm pretty sure I did that this did happen. That in, I think it must have been like 1988, there was an exhibition at the Palacio de Bellas Artes in Mexico City um, for a Canadian artist called Arnold Belkin okay, who became a sort of late muralist and he, he naturalized he became a naturalized Mexican he ended up living in Mexico City 
uh, and he, he ended up working as a, as a muralist, even as in the 1950s, I think, even as the sort of older mural school was sort of um, fading away and Mexican artists were looking to other ways of uh, uh, painting. And he actually uh, created a series of paintings based on not necessarily the actual photograph, um, but the photograph was famously compared to a painting by Rembrandt called The Anatomy Lesson. Okay, yeah. Um, and this was mentioned in, and now I'm sort of uh, a lot of bibliography coming out here, but there's another famous essay by uh, John Berger, yes. the famous British art critic. And he was the first person to compare the, um, the Che Cristo to the Rembrandt painting of The Anatomy Lesson mm-hmm. um, just after Che's death. So Belk, going back to Belkin, now the Mexican-Canadian artist, he takes um, Rembrandt's painting and creates a series of canvases based on that so that analogy between the uh, Che Cristo and the Rembrandt painting. I'm pretty sure that there was an exhibition in Mexico City in Bellas Artes in 1988, and I was there. Wow. <laughs> so that that's another possible uh, that's you know that's when I I've been aware of the you know the actual uh, photographs since that period. This is all getting very meta now. Not only is your article about a photograph within a film, you, <laughs> yeah, your exactly. memory is now yeah. of a photograph that you saw right, on TV, right, right. and then you it's visited bizarre, an it? exhibition about <laughs> right. pictures of a photograph compared to the other. Right, oh, right, right. This is so. wow. It's amazing yeah. how there's another essay you could write about this. Now, I know, exactly. About memory. Right, right. right so. <laughs> That's fascinating. And from there, I know that you did some of your teaching. You say that you were doing a course about icons in Latin American studies and you were talking about the famous Alberto Corda photograph of Che, that one that every student had on their walls of the guerrillero heroico that was on every T-shirt and every bag. And you were comparing that with Freddy Alborta's photograph of Che, the Che Cristo. You mentioned something about how more seeds were planted at this stage and you started teaching about this and it sort of made you think and compare the myths around Che and, and that led led you here as well. What, what would you say about that? Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, it's important that you mentioned that, that everybody, you know, knows that uh, Guerrero Heroico, photo, the Corda photograph, right? But... Um, I think, as you pointed out at the beginning, maybe not everybody's aware of the Che Cristo. But yes, yeah, so I was teach. I had to prepare a course on Latin American icons. Um, so teaching Latin American cultural history through images, basically, and, and iconic figures. And but you know that sort of images of iconic figures, I think, was the the, the sort of uh, central thesis. So obviously, I was going to include Che Guevara in in the course, and yeah, I made that sort of. Um, comparison between these two iconic photos and I think you know that was another way I think that it was at that point when I was preparing materials for the course that I actually came across uh, Leandro Katz's film because I'd Mm -hmm. um, you know obviously I'd um, become I was aware of the the photo but I wasn't aware of the the film and then also in terms of teaching you know, I was teaching a lot of colonial uh, Latin American cultural studies at the time as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so this would be sort of in the 2000s. And what I used to do with colonial classes was try to combine, just to make it sort of more challenging and maybe stimulating, because I was teaching a lot of uh, uh, 
postgraduate students was to combine uh, colonial era texts with modern uh, theoretical texts, critical theory. So I combined uh, the Che image, you know, the, the photograph, um, and compared it to a text we were reading about um, the Casonsi of Michoacan. Okay, so this was um, an indigenous. The, Chief. Exactly. So the cacique of, of Michoacan at the time of the um, Spanish conquest, who was burnt at the stake uh, in 1530. And so we did a reading of the burning of the stake in terms of a sort of Foucault discipline and punish or Elaine Skerry, the body in pain and the relationship between sovereign power and uh, spectacular punishment, that sort of thing, and then made that sort of uh, connection between this sort of distribution of this this photograph of Che Guevara dead that was supposed to indicate, um, mm -hmm. you know, the triumph against the revolution, uh, which was the idea. So your students must have loved your courses. That's brilliant stuff. Yeah, I, 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 actually, I do. Th I mean, I don't think people would, uh, many colonial purists would approve, but uh, <laughs> but I think the students found it interesting, um, yeah. I think, at the time. Do you find that that sort of generally works with you, that sort of teaching pulls you in a certain direction or inspires you to go down a path? Because that sounds like that's been a long time in the making, you know? Yeah, well, I think, yeah, that sort of uh, making connections or trying to create a sort of montage of ideas if, if you know I'm creating a course like that yeah yeah with photographic histories so this you know I also enjoy the, the mythic side of it and the sort of playful fictional side of things as well so yeah um, I think that's an important part of uh, you know working with historical texts absolutely what was it about because it was around that time did you say the sort of late 90s early 2000s well, that's when it came out, I suppose, 97, that you found out about Leandro Katz's film. What what was it about that that you found particularly interesting? Well, I was just interested that somebody had actually made a film about the photo like that. I, know that. I mean, I didn't know of any. I mean, I'd seen, you know, I'd seen the the image in documentaries about Che Guevara, right? A sort of general kind or about, I don't know. Um, Cuba in the 60s or whatever and that sort of thing where you, you or well and then there is the famous film you know the really famous third cinema film The Hour of the Furnaces mm -hmm. that includes um, you know footage from um, the photo shoot and, and the same thing but so there are you know there are famous films that include uh, you know the photograph in it but I don't think anybody had made a documentary film devoted solely to the photograph so I think just that and then um, as I said at the beginning I think the question of the relationship between analog photography and history um, and the you know this now old-fashioned idea of the analog archival photograph being a sort of faithful representation of the past now that's been challenged with the advent of digital photography mm, yeah. so I think and he you know there's a bit there's a part in the film where he has Alborta um, almost perform the developing his negatives you know sort of taking yeah. the film out of the camera and he's in his dark room and he's sort of producing the actual photograph mm -hmm. and so I think I think that I thought that was very interesting just that particular angle yeah 
and elsewhere in the film, just so we can get really a sense of what happens in that film. So there's a lot of focuses, obviously, on that particular photograph, but then you see many other images that were hitherto unseen that Al, that uh, Alberta had taken on the day. He shows you his negatives. They look at that. He talks to him in depth about what happened, where they landed, coming off the plane and being taken in with the soldiers and and then he has music that's being played over he has poetry from some of the greats of latin america he has neruda he has borges that kind of gives you an idea of the film and then there were also he had a whole lot of exhibitions that traveled around various different places all the various installations that he had that culminated almost in the film to give you a bit of a backstory about how cats arrived there really yeah, because, yeah, because, but he's, you know, I mean, he's a vision, he does many things. I mean, he does photography, he does visual art, he does, uh, he makes documentaries, he's made some even made feature films, but it's all very, you know, very avant-garde, alternative, sort of marginal alternative stuff. And you recently spoke to him as well, I believe, didn't you? Yes, yes. We organised an interview with him for the SLAS annual uh, convention this year. Uh, and we talked pretty, you know, more, more generally about his work and um, showed images of his, not just the, you know, the El Dia Que but lots of his, his works. Uh, and it was great. I mean, one of the advantages of Zoom was that, was that we were able to speak to him from his home in Buenos Aires. And um, he was able to uh, sort of, if he wanted to tell us about one particular work, he'd just get up from his computer and go to the bookshelf and pull a book off the shelf and go, wow. this is the book I was talking about. So it was kind of, it was fun as well in that sense. So Yeah, that definitely sounds entertaining. Yeah, and he can be yeah. relaxed then in his own home and introduce you to all of his surroundings. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, he was very relaxed. Uh, and the actual documentary, El Dica Miqueras, comes from a wider series of installations on the same theme. But mm-hmm. he, he did have a touring uh, exhibition in the States in the late 90s um, called P- Projects for the Day That You Love Me, um, which was, I think, he exhibited in New York and Chicago and a couple of other uh, big cities in the States. So it was basically, yeah, images, uh, stills, um and then sort of text, image and text in these, in a vast series of installations based around the theme of the uh, Che's final Bolivian campaign. Mm. Well, it's easy to see why you'd be interested in cats and his work. But whenever you get from there, down to get to the nuts and bolts of the article, I mean, you mentioned that there's a three section structure. Did that become quite clear to you from the outset or how did you arrive there? What I was looking at initially was that notion of it being this sort of uh, master trope for the victims of forced di- disappearance. You know that Che um, in the film, or at least in the way the photograph is presented in the film, represents all the disappeared because the uh, 1997, when he made the film, um, the supposed remains of Che Guevara were found in Bolivia and repatriated to Cuba. So yeah. the, there was also that sort of analogy as well between the finding of the remains of this uh, disappeared revolutionary and, and at the time the ongoing uh, identification of remains of 
you know, militants who'd been mm. assassinated and disappeared um, two decades before. So, yeah. you know, the, there is that particular, um, I think that was the most important aspect. That's what I wanted to get out of it, um, I think. The idea um, of the mourning surrounding yeah or or just the symbolism that that it was def i wanted you know i wanted to say this is a representation of memory art right mm-hmm. like all these because there were a lot of photo essays that were produced between uh the mid 90s and the mid 2000s by you know well-known photographers like Ma- uh, marcelo brodsky known he, he had that famous essay in 97 called buena memoria mm-hmm. um so there's a there's a trend at the time um mostly in photography i'd say whereby people are working with photography to um communicate this idea of of the memory of of the disappeared you no know, and the militants who were killed in in the 70s and i i just felt that um i felt cats fitted into that sort of trend um, mm-hmm. so that, that that's what I was looking at and when it came to this sort of theoretical framework that you use then for your article how do you arrive at that do you decide that you're going to focus on particular criticism or where do you do you get there first and then you apply it to cats what's your approach in that sense yeah, that's a good question isn't it I mean they always say oh when I was when I was a grad student myself they all said oh no you can't apply theory you know this, this notion of the toolbox is wrong and uh, you've got a there's a I, but I don't know what the right answer is myself but... does it happen organically maybe <laughs> right right or, <laughs> I mean personally I just you know I re- I read stuff that interests me and I try to make connections and and if I feel that uh the theory can help me to create a more interesting argument. And, and I like, you know, it's got to be a pleasure for me as well. I mean, I don't think, um, you know, I've got to enjoy doing it. I think you've got to, there's got to be an instinctive um, connection. connection with what you're yeah. doing. So, but I think, you know, I mean, the main, in terms of theory, I mean, I work quite a bit in that essay on Walter Benjamin's yeah. work, you know, but I don't think that's particularly, you know, original in that sense, because, everybody seems to work on Benjamin right and uh and he his work has been in looking at that uh you know the image of Che and I think it, it's quite obvious why you know in terms of the quotation that I look at from the work of art in the age of uh, mechanical reproduction you know, where um Benjamin talks about you know the first photographs being the last remnant of the the aura that we find in those daguerreotypes that the, the uh, what he calls the aura is seen for the last time in those images of the dead. Cause when they first in, um, invented photography, there was this whole sort of strange association between photography and spiritism and black magic and people had used photography um, to take pictures of stealing your soul. That right. Or, or the people had used photography yeah. to take pictures of dead relatives Mm. as if they felt they should take a picture of the corpse to somehow exactly yeah so there was this quite morbid (laughs) a lot of morbid association (laughs) you know I mean and since its invention famously in um you know in in Sontag's on photography sort of seminal texts on photography that you know photography's always been associated with death and so you know it lends itself to 
you know, a picture of Che Guevara's corpse lends itself to that kind of, um, that nexus of uh, uh, different thoughts on that particular relationship, you know, between the aura, you know, death, pres preserving the dead and trying to transcend chronological time, that sort of thing. Yeah. So the link sort of came naturally for you. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think, you know, in that, as I said, I don't think it's particularly original. But what I like about what I did was that, you know, I, I did look at several texts by Benjamin, and I, I did work through it thoroughly. It wasn't just a sort of a one off comment. I mean, I did work, um, you know, there's quite a lot in there. So one of the things that I thought was really clever in the way that you told me how you started with this article was that you sort of look at what hooks you in and then think about it like a puzzle and then it's sort of how you can solve that puzzle I thought that was a really nice way of putting it yeah I think you know and that's what I tell students as well I mean that's the way I see all essay writing or academic essay writing you know you've got to have a purpose right I mean or else it and, and if you don't feel hooked in or feel that you're trying to solve a problem it, it's difficult to um you know, maintain your focus or feel that it's worthwhile if you don't, you know, have that. Um, it's your thesis, basically, right? But I, but I think that people do, despite the difference between analog and digital, that people do, ordinary people who look at photographs, people who are not academics, or even if they're academics, they, they do look at photographs, archival photographs, as if they were an emanation of that past event or person right and that mm -hmm. it and whereas that it that's ridiculous i mean it's a two-dimensional surface right that yeah is a distortion of of what you actually see or the way we see so but in terms of the way the public receives images you know i think mm -hmm. my we do believe in them i mean we do believe that they represent um what happened right even yeah. on social exactly media. what happened whether or not they were manipulated right exactly right so well, but I think at the same time, people do, the general public does have, you know, a critical capa a capacity for thinking, mm, well, this is maybe manipulated, right? And they're not, they're not necessarily fooled either. But I think at yeah. certain times. But perhaps want... they, they don't consider the archival photographs in the same way, because, they, you know, they can't be manipulated in what you're actually looking at but the scene could be set up in such a way as to manipulate you but that's not the way we were ever trained to look at those photographs we just sort of right, accepted exactly. them as facts when they were presented to us in a newspaper or some other trusted source so, right yeah. exactly and that's yeah. another fascinating thing about the Che Cristo that the actual the set what you see is a setup right mm. I mean that they 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 cleaned up the body they placed it in a certain position so that you got this sort of maximum identification of the face mm -hmm. they tried to make the it eyes look, open especially right exactly and open. making him look as if he'd been shot in battle and there's yeah. the, you know one of the sort of uh uh the the officers who's standing by in in uniform is pointing, pointing at the bullet at the hole in in the torso as if to say look he was shot in battle and and he wasn't right i mean he was executed yeah. in cold cold blood but so yeah. the whole scene is a setup. So that I mean, that in itself is interesting that you've got this photograph that's supposed to be um, a representation of historical truth. This is what happened. This revolutionary is dead. This is how it happened. But the actual scene that you see has been set up. Before the photographer clicked, it was the setup. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So 
And I guess then you, you told us about your inspiration and that happened sort of, it sounds like something was building for a long period of time. So then what about getting it out of your head, and getting it onto the page? What about your writing <laughs> process? <laughs> I want to forget about it now. Uh, <laughs> that yeah, is the yeah. torturous bit. <laughs> right, right, right. Getting it onto the page. Yeah, I mean, the process of writing in general, I mean, you know, I mean, in some way, I'm terrible. I mean, I, I'm a really, you know, I, I teach students how to write at the moment. I mean, so, uh, but I don't follow my own advice. Uh, so I, I think that may be a problem. Do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> right. I hope exactly. they're not listening. Right, this right. true. Exactly. He doesn't do this. So, so, yeah, I mean, you know, what you're supposed to do is is, you know, read your sources, make notes, and then uh, synthesize those notes and bring it all together it hopefully in in a sort of in a way that is uh, amenable for your readers right and well, it's almost like a painting where I'm just throwing on um, throwing on lots of paint and then having to go back several times and um, take things away subtract things um, yeah. remove some of that paint and then organize it into um an identifiable image of what I'm trying to, what I'm actually trying to say. So it takes a while. Sometimes, I mean, not always, but but I think that's the way I I'm working at the moment. I put a lot down. So my essays are very, very long. How long do you think it was? Because I was just taking a wee, because you sort of pare it back into its more refined form. And the article, as we published it, was, I'd say, around twelve or 13,000 words. How many do you think you had at the start? Was it double that, triple that? Where... No, no, no. I mean, I probably had a version that was 15,000, something like that. Oh, but I mean, I, you know, I tend to go off at tangents. I mean, so there are other things you could say about, um, you know, connected to Leandro Katz's work on photography or um, Che Guevara or whatever that connected to what I say that's not in the, 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 the actual final essay. Well, they are very um, wide subjects, so it is, it's a, yeah. it's a talent in itself yeah. to be able to restrain yourself and constrain yourself to what you said you were going to write about in the first place, I guess. One of the things I've always found difficult, and I know speaking to the other academics, is it's really hard to know or to accept that you're finished and that that's enough. <laughs> right. Am I happy with it? Can I stop? Is this the end? Do I have closure? Did you get there? Do you, did you... Is that easy for you or is it? It's, it's the, the process whereby, you know, you submit the manuscript and then they come back to you and they say, well, you know, we would publish this, but you need to do this. And, and that helps me, right? I mean, you, getting that feedback from the, the journal to tell you, stop doing that and you should do a bit of this <laughs> and we'll publish it for you right so you know you need other people to look at it and yeah. uh, you can get it's friends very and hard to be self-critical right exactly so you need another pair of eyes but also I think you know getting friends and colleagues to read through when everybody's really busy anyway to read mm. through 15,000 words for you you know you've got to be very close right so yeah. um, or they've got to be very interested in what you're doing so I think you know, the process of, of publication does help you in that sense. I mean, mm -hmm. get something to the journal and get them to have it reviewed and then um, use the feedback to control yourself. So you <laughs> like, think that's a, a key, that's a key step? I do, yeah, I do. Th I think it's getting another opinion, sort of. Yeah, 
because I think, you know, when we spoke before, I said, sometimes I feel like, oh, no, I don't want to leave that bit out. I really like that. <laughs> That's bit. the so, best bit. That's right? three but, Yeah, words yeah. But I'm sorry, you know, and you want to apologize to that bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know what that's like. I'm like you. I need to write it all down and then I can't take any of it. <laughs> right, right, it's right, very right. hard. So, yeah. I agree. So what advice then would you have for someone who's just starting out for an early career researcher that's approaching it? Is there something that you would say, do do this? Uh, and not don't this? be like me. <laughs> <laughs> don't do what I do anyway. Um, that might be just moving to a different part of the essay. If you're stuck on one bit, move, I, if I move to another part, that helps me and I start to think afresh. Mm-hmm. Or even, you know, it might just be, if I've done a lot of reading, but it, you might need just one more source that helps you, that stimulates you to get going again. Yeah. You know, that, that, that I find helps at times. But definitely there's got to be some kind of interruption when I get stuck and I can't, um, I find it's hard to get the the juices flowing and to come up with uh, just to, you know, to get moving again. Start afresh. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So what's next then for you? I know you've got a new book coming out. So can you tell us about that? Yes. So I've got this visual memories of dictatorship. So this is a study of post-dictatorship uh, photography in a number of um, Latin American countries and that's where the cats photograph uh, documentary comes in that I use it as a sort of uh, a premise to mm. um, to look at um, memory art photography in different countries in Guatemala in Uruguay Argentina and Chile um, and that hopefully um i'm just finishing the manuscript or i finished it but i've made it to, after Hooray! all the way yeah but it, it's too long oh god <laughs> so i've got i'm in the process of reducing it so um ah. so but it, hopefully it'll be out at the end of this year or really early in uh, the next year in 2022 and that's uh, university of wales press isn't that's it? university of wales keep press, her eyes yeah. peeled for that yeah. one yeah okay and one of the things we always like to ask our subjects in the podcast here is for their try this at home tips. So how do you unlock those creative juices? Do you do yoga, sun salutations? Do you write a distraction to-do list? Now, I swear I was not procrastinating the other day, but I discovered that what you're supposed to do when you feel distracted is you write a list of whatever things are distracting you. So then when it's time for your break, you can do them all. So I'm afraid my list would be too long, though, because I'd get distracted thinking about who plays the president's <laughs> wife in the West Wing and what was. <laughs> That's just me, possibly. But what is it that you think of for your try this at home tips? What would you suggest when you need to really get in the zone? Definitely choose the yoga over. Yeah. I don't think writing a li- uh, writing a list would would be torture. I think I probably <laughs> I think if I wrote the list, it'd probably end up becoming an essay or something. Yeah. I don't know. Or, uh, I'd like I'd to read that essay though. <laughs> right here is my <laughs> list. It's fifteen thousand words. Um, no, I, I think as I said before, I, I I've no you know brilliant if I did have a brilliant idea I'd probably <laughs> I, you're not telling anyone because right, it's so right, good right, you're exactly. keeping it to yourself so um, mean no I think just you know as we've said just obvious stuff like taking break but or moving on to something else and then coming back to the thing um that you were stuck with right so I think yeah. that's um 
so that you have a slightly different angle when you come back to it. Okay, well, that's been fantastic. Thank you very much, David Rajinsky. That's been fascinating stuff. And I've really enjoyed hearing all about your article and all about the photograph and films that inspired. Thank you, Gemma. And thank you very much for joining in our podcast. And I hope to see you again soon.